Please be seated. All right, let's get at it. Exodus chapter 26, page 66 in your Pew Bible, and also Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 22, found on page 1007. Exodus 26, and then Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 22 on page 1007. The Lord God Almighty said to Moses, Have the people make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. And it's that very sanctuary, that tabernacle that we've been studying these past number of weeks. God's sanctuary, God's mobile temple, designed by God, blueprints, if you will, handed to Moses when he visited the Lord on the holy mountain. And this morning we have the plans before us of God's tent of meeting, this holy tent in Exodus chapter 26. Now it's easy to have a misguided understanding of the tabernacle's purpose. Uh, When we think of a religious building, a a church or a temple, we tend to think it's a place where people gather regularly for worship. But gathering the community for worship was not the primary purpose of the tabernacle. You might also think of the tabernacle as a place where sacrifices were offered to the Lord. And, And while that was a key component, still, it was not first and foremost a place of priestly sacrifices. More than anything else, the tabernacle was God's dwelling place among his people. God didn't live there literally. The creator cannot be contained in in anything we could create or build. But it was the location on earth where the Lord's unapproachable glory was present. It's said in physical form, I am with you. I am with you. Out in this wilderness, out in the desert places, wherever you go, I am with you. The tabernacle and layer of the temple were crucial to the Israelites because they signified God's covenant and mercy, God's provision and presence, God's life and light. In time, God chose to be to his people in a new way. And we've come back to this passage in John's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 14, time and again throughout our series. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, tabernacled among us. The bridge between the transcendent God and the material universe pitched his tent with us. Jesus, Emmanuel, which means God with us. With God with us, we, the people of God, can have confidence and we can be empowered to live out this new life and this vocation that God has called us to, to be his people on earth as it is in heaven and the coming of his kingdom. 
So first, in our message today, we'll look at this tent and the restricted access to the tabernacle. Then we'll look at the only lawful point of entry, the only way to gain access to God's presence. And then finally, we'll talk about experiencing God's presence powerfully in your life. And a little, a little note to you, we're going to spend the most of our time, and I'll be worked up into a lather by, we get, by the time we get to the third act of this sermon, because that's what I really want to communicate with you today. For starters, let's look at this restricted access to the throne of God on heaven, the tent of meeting, Exodus chapter 26, verse 1. Moreover, you shall make the tabernacle with ten curtains of fine twined linen and blue and purple and scarlet yarns. You shall make them with cherubim skillfully worked, worked into them. Now, I'm going to do something uncharacteristic. I'm going to stop right there, and we're not going to read the rest of the chapter aloud. And somebody's saying, thank you. Because it contains... A lot of detail. I'm talking a lot of detail. This incredible detail of this tent. This tent was 45 feet wide by 15 feet high. It had a wooden skeletal structure. It was overlaid, all of the wood overlaid with gold. No solid roof or front wall. The, the wood beams passed through, through rings that were attached to the frame, and the frame structure was covered with layers upon layers of, of cloth and skins. And there were these incredible curtains on the inside, adorned with blue and purple and scarlet yarns. This description of layer upon layer of tapestry, curtains that separated those Two special rooms inside the holy place from the most holy place. According to the Jewish Talmud, the extra-biblical writings of the Jewish people, of, of the rabbis, that curtain that separated that holy place from the most holy of places was four inches thick and took almost a hundred priests to move from place to place. Can you imagine this tent of meeting was a microcosm of the universe in miniature form. God's kingdom coming on earth as it is in heaven. So to the Israelites, inside that tent was heaven's throne. And outside was the earth. And so God was at the center of everything in their life. It was the center of the world, the center of the universe inside that tent. Now in practice, they knew very few, very, very few would ever be allowed to go inside. For the tent, you see, was off limits. Even that courtyard was restricted. They had no doubt that God was with them, but they also knew access to his throne on earth was extremely limited. And the symbols of paradise, the, the, the Garden of Eden, we've, we talked about the tree uh, last week, but 
the beautiful symbols that were stitched into the, the tapestry, the curtains there, all designed to, to evoke and to remind people what it once would be like to be in paradise with those guardian angels protecting the entrance when our first parents were, were driven out. This was all designed to show the, the supreme holiness of God, God's plan of restoration at work. Restricted access, but also one means of entry by way of a mediator. And so there was one point of entry. Only one lawful point of entry was the place between the veil, between uh, the, the curtain. And, and it was restricted only for the priest to enter into that, that uh, holy room. And even then, only one priest, the high priest, would ever dare to enter into the most holy of places where the Ark of the Covenant lay, literally God's throne on earth. And only the high priest could enter with an offering, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. As we confessed together, we had our statement of faith. What did it say? It talked about the ceremonies of the Old Testament foreshadowing what was to come, pointing to the future atonement and the future hope that we have even now of a new heavens and new earth coming into reality. Yet in between that first paradise and paradise loss and then that new promise there's still people, all of us here, and people everywhere that long to draw near to God. Who believe that only God's presence will satisfy them. And yet it's confused because they've settled for lesser gods than the one true God. They're separated from God, their creator. And because of that, because of our sin, we create idols. We create little gods that we can follow. And yet we all want to get back to Eden some way, somehow. And King David had that same desire, that desire for access, a desire to, to be close to God. When you read about his great desire, his passion, his longing to be near the Lord throughout the Psalms. But one Psalm I'll turn our attention to is Psalm 15, in which he writes, O Lord, who may live in your tent? David's a king, right? He's not going to sell just for being near. He wants to live there. Who, who, can, who can live in your tent, Lord? Not outside the tent, inside. Who may live on your holy hill? He's asking the question, who can gain access Oh God, who's worthy? And David's answer in the psalm is to describe the ideal worshiper that has all the ideal qualifications for entry into the holy place. For David knew only uh, just the right kind of person could go in, and he says, well, it must be a person who has all these character qualities that David yearned to have more and more of in his life. But the psalm ends, and you wonder, does David, is he saying... But I'll never reach or attain that kind of access. The only lawful portal of entry to the holy presence of God is to perfectly live as a whole human being. 
And who could ever do that? David leads us wondering. And this is where the gospel comes in. The gospel is how we gain access through Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the only perfect man who is God. When he was crucified, he paid for all sin, and the barrier was opened. The curtain that separated the the holy place from the most holy of places was torn in two. The Bible says, was rent asunder by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, when we read about what happened at the crucifixion of Christ, we have our eyes on the cross. But do we know what was happening not too far away in the temple? It was amazing. Listen to these words from Matthew 27, verses 50 to 51. I'll read it to you. It says, when Jesus had cried out in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. He had the ability to choose the moment. He gave up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and rocks were split. A 15-high-foot curtain, four inches thick, a place that would take a hundred priests to move. And it says that the moment Jesus gave up his spirit, that barrier to access was torn in two from top to bottom to give us access. Restricted no more. And that's why when you turn to the story of the spreading of the gospel... And the book of Acts, which are the acts of the Holy Spirit. And we read about these scaredy-cat disciples who were hiding out one minute, and then the next minute, filled with the Holy Spirit, they're going out into the streets, proclaiming this message that the Messiah lives again. A criminal executed by the state of Rome. You're going to celebrate that? Never been done before. Following your Messiah who's dead, they would all fade away. Yet not this group. They say, oh no, all of God's promises are yes in him. He lives. He lives again. And then you read in Acts chapter 6, verse 7, this incredible report. It says, the word of God continued to increase and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And note, and a great many of the priests, the Jewish priests, became obedient to faith. Why do you suppose so many priests became obedient to faith? Because they were in the temple on duty that day, guarding that restricted access, and then they look up, and they see the curtain torn in two, and they knew what it meant. They knew it meant that heaven was breaking in, literally Heaven was coming to earth, and something was forever changed. That there was restricted access to right relationship with the holy, living God, and now the portal of entry through believing by faith in his Son, Jesus Christ, coming to the Lord, Jesus Christ as your Savior, is the entry point into God's presence. And so there are folks sitting here saying, "Uh uh-huh, we know this. We get this in Sunday school. We know it. 
You teach it. It's here. But is it here? Because if, if you know it, but you're not experiencing it even now, that's what I'm going to get into a lather about. Now you think that you're lifting prayers and they're just bouncing off heaven and falling to earth. They're coming to worship and struggling to get through and focusing on what's happening in this place. That's what we want to talk about. Because that kind of life as a disciple can be experienced. This kind of empowering that will cost you can be experienced right now in this place. And so we're going to look to the book of Hebrews. Okay? Chapter 10, verses 19 to 22, on page again, 1007. I can see some folks saying, okay, well, now, now I'll turn there. Gosh, he's made such a big deal about it. I, I have the ple pleasure of working out every Wednesday morning with Colin Seeger. He's a pastor of Durwood Bible Church. Great brother in Christ. Uh, a neighbor lives just up the street from us. And we have this interesting symbiotic relationship. Things that he's going through and I'm going through, we can share and encourage. He just came back from a, a recon mission to Brazil to think about starting a ministry there. And God's kind of laid it on, on my heart to bring to our mission council the idea of a, a mission in Brazil. And so there's something happening uh, on Wednesday mornings at the gym. And what's interesting also to note is while we're going through the book of Exodus, Durwood Bible is going through the book of Hebrews. And they really complement each other quite a bit. The, the author of the book of Hebrews wrote to people who were facing a no-turning-back decision. Should they stick with the familiar routine of the Jewish religion or take a big gamble and risk in following Jesus? After all, the, the Jews enjoyed uh, protection by Rome, and they had traditions that dated back uh, thousands of years. Or should they, they take a risk and join this growing body of people who were calling themselves followers of Christ, Christians? They needed some compelling reason to choose Jesus because at that time, new converts were being kicked out of their synagogues, they were being thrown into jail, and worse, they were being tortured. Was faith in Jesus Christ worth the risk? The pull of the old and the fear of the new kept them interested, especially Jewish people were, were interested. Yeah, you have some, some interesting points to make, but this letter was written to, to draw them or maybe give them a little nudge, hopefully in the direction of Jesus to become Christians. And so the, the book of Hebrews quotes the Hebrew scriptures we call the Old Testament, quotes it over 80 times to express to the people how Jesus Christ is the better way. That Jesus Christ is that, that lawful portal. He is our great high priest. He is the great mediator for us. The only access to the new heaven and earth inaugurated in his death and resurrection and ascension. That's what the whole book is about until you get to chapter 10. So that's all of that good Sunday school knowledge and all those things we cover. And then he drops a bomb of what it means to experience it now, presently. Chapter 10, verse 19. Therefore, 
all these things we've just said. Therefore, brothers, sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is his body. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God. Let us draw near to God. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water, the waters of baptism. What does this mean? It means putting your faith in Jesus, embracing the truth of Christ's person and work, a truth that is so often twisted and turned around and discredited in churches than the true gospel message of his person and work who made the perfect sacrifice to gain us access and entry as our great high priest and leads to encouragement and confidence. If you have this, if you believe this, draw near to God. The author of Hebrews is saying, right now you can experience powerful life in Christ by drawing near to God. His body is the curtain. What an awesome image. And how do we enter? What's our attitude? Well, I've, I've, I've got all the information I need. I'll, I'll, I'll wait in line. What's our attitude? It says enter with confidence, with, with a sincere heart, just going to be open and honest, no guilt, assured of your faith, clean. Friends, if you are a disciple of Jesus Christ this morning, you believe he's given you access, and you believe he's bringing the plan of redemption, a new heaven and earth in which the divine image is restored in us, and we return to our rightful vocation as God God's called ones, the Bible calls us his royal priesthood. If you are a disciple, you believe that we are called forth to worship God, to praise God, to intercede for, power, for people powerfully. You believe all these things, but are you experiencing the Holy Spirit working in your life, drawing you closer to the Lord? Or does his presence still feel like Restricted access. Friends, this is at the heart of how the gospel works in our lives. We'll either move back to self-constructed, man-made, religious, misguided understandings that restricted access to God is just the way it is. It's for super-Christians that we might have one day have called priests, but now they're just really on fire people, those special kinds of people. Or you'll take a risk, and in your brokenness and in your need, you'll draw near to him. And I want you to experience God's presence powerfully. So let's get down to it. What's the difference between the two? Religion restricts access because it teaches the wrong order of salvation. 
Religion teaches you believe, then you do good works, get your life in order, and then you're saved, hopefully. The gospel is you believe, and at that instant, you are saved. You are fully and forever redeemed. And then out of that, you can't help yourself but to do good works, to start living this new life. And yeah, you don't get right all the time. You, you stumble. You need to come back. you got friends and family to encourage you to look at God's word. I'm like, oh, Lord, can you keep working on that area of my life? But, but I know that I'm saved. This is the gospel. This is religion. Religion's approach, and I'm making such a point about this and not looking at my watch because it's so critical that we understand this, Nielsenville. Religion's approach is you, you obey to be saved and hopefully you measure up. But the gospel says when you believe, you are saved and then from the empowering work of the Spirit, being born again, saved from a dead end life, you're also saved for the kingdom of God here and now. They have the exact same elements, but a radically different order and radically different motivations and outcomes. So on our motivation, what gets you going in the morning? Do you say, well, if I obey, then I'll be accepted by God and, and, and I'll get access? Or do you say, because I am fully accepted by God in Jesus Christ and loved. Therefore, I obey. I want to draw near. I want to live boldly and risk for him. Tim Keller teaches, if our motivation is to gain access by our work, what happens is obedience is anxious and selfish. It's anxious because you're never quite sure if you measure up. You're never quite sure if you're being a good enough Christian. And it's selfish because even though you're doing a lot of good things, a lot of things that Jesus taught us to do, caring for the poor, reading your Bibles, giving to the church, supporting the ministry and mission of the church, but it's selfish because you're doing it for yourself. You're doing it to gain access. But what does God say in Exodus 26? What is he saying in Hebrews 10? He's saying, I am with you. You see, the outcomes are radically different. If you follow religion, that God's access is still restricted, and you have to obey, you have to be the ideal worshiper that we saw in Psalm 15, it will cause anxiety and selfishness, and there's no joy in that. And church just becomes a bummer. And, and, and all we have to say is our, 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 our resume. Well, I've, I've been going to church this many years. This is the committees I've done. This is all the work I've done. What's it good for? And what's worse than that, if we're following religion, do you know what it does in, in, in your heart? When you're ever crossed, when, any, when anyone dares ask you a question about what's really going on, we get defensive. Why? Because we might get found out that we're not so ideal. Friends, that's not how the gospel frees you up. The gospel frees you up. I'm a sinner. I can't, I can't even button my, yeah, this is, this is me. I'm sweaty. I'm hot. I'm no good. I'm not worthy to be here. But the Lord in his grace calls me to be here. I'm not a super Christian. 
but praise him for his powerful grace that works through a vessel that the Bible describes as just a a dirty uh, recycling container, yet fills a person like me with his glorious grace to work in other people's lives. That's the gospel at work. If you hear the gospel that you're a sinner and that the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ justifies you completely now and forever, that you're living a new life and that he's sanctifying you, he's moving you more and more into being the person you were meant to be, then you will say, I already have everything I need. I I don't need the approval of those people. I have the approval of the king. I don't need him to say I'm beautiful on Tuesday. I know I'm beautiful in the eyes of my king. That's the gospel. And his access to you is wide open even now. So listen, my friends, you are not outside the perimeter. You have an all-access pass to his grace. You are valuable not because you scored well or by your performance. Your record is not what counts. It's his record. He gets 100% credit for saving you. And it's his invitation to draw near, to abide, to come, to live as a called one in the kingdom that matters most. Two years ago, I had the privilege of traveling to, to Israel and laying my hands on the foundation stones of the second temple. Tabernacle is long since gone. The first temple destroyed long ago. The, the second temple destroyed in around 70 AD by the Romans, brick by brick, stone by stone. But even though that tabernacle and that temple are no more, the gospel promises that God is building on the cornerstone of Christ a new temple made of living stones. And he promises that you and I, even now, inside, we are a temple for his Holy Spirit. So come, draw near to him, and he will draw near to you. Let's pray. Gracious God, how good you are to give us tangible signs of your presence. Lord, I pray for uh, anyone here that is struggling with drawing near to you, Lord, that you would do that good work in their hearts. Remind us, Lord, of, of, of what it is we've created, these idols that we call religion, and cast them aside and to embrace the identity we have in Christ. Not only do we have confidence that comes from from knowing that you are with us, but also we are able to know you so much better. So we thank you, gracious God, for being with us each moment through your spirit. How blessed we are to experience your guidance, power, and comfort. All praise be to you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, for living among us and for inviting us to live with you. Amen. Amen.